Do you have your Bibles with you? Let's open to James chapter 1. And let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we thank you, just even as we're hearing these stories about what you're doing through the school downstairs and what you're doing through the, the children in the school downstairs, the, the witness that they are to parents that are often quite antagonistic and against you, Lord. And uh, we pray just now, just for that school, that you would continue to flourish it, that you would bring people in to help in the school, that you would continue to let those little kids be a witness to their parents and far beyond. We just sometimes think it has to be adults that are doing it all the time. And uh, we just thank you that the great work that you're doing down there. We pray now as we just uh, spend time in your word that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, and that you would bless our time together. In your name we ask it, Lord. Amen. So James chapter 1, verse 2 through 8 says, My brothers, count to all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let that man not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord, for he's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So today we get to speak about a fun subject. I'm going to speak about trials today. And uh, I've used this before, but maybe some of us have heard of the phrase, if life hands you lemons, make lemonade that's right that is when life throws something nasty and sour at you and you're like what is this when something hard to swallow is given to you find the blessing within it realize that within that sour nasty acidic lemon lies the basis for something that is sweet delicious, and when ice is added to it, refreshing. We could all do with some lemonade right now, right? So when life hands you something bad, we can turn that defeat into victory. We can turn that trial into triumph. And all throughout the Bible and all throughout human history, there's countless stories of men and women who have turned defeat into victory and who've turned trial into triumph who took the lemon that life threw at them and they were able to make lemonade. And here, James is going to be very practical and he's going to give us a few examples. How we're to react when we go into trials. What should my attitude be when I'm in the midst of a trial? Why we have to go through trials. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just protect us from everything? a little bubble over us 
And third, power to profit from trials. What is the end result? What is the goal of trials in our life? And James starts off, he says, my brothers. And he's not writing to just anyone here, James. If you look back to verse one, it says he's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered amongst the nations. Um, some Bibles say it, the Jewish believers who are scattered abroad. He's writing to people that didn't have nice, cushy lives. They weren't nice, comfy Christians. They were just able to sit at home in a nice, comfy chair. They were, it was the diaspora. Those Christians that after the Romans had came in and destroyed Jerusalem and everything like this, they'd been scattered and dispersed throughout of the Asian region and they were suffering. They were suffering tremendous persecution. They'd been scattered to Turkey, Greece, the Mediterranean, quite possibly some came to Spain because Nero had come into power. And that is often when the devil likes to <laughs> swoop in in our lives <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a bit disco church today. That's all right. Let's just see if that... Okay. <laughs> Great, my eyesight's not the best. So. <laughs> it's a trial. Okay. <laughs> so, this is when the devil often likes to kind of swoop in on our lives and tell us that you ain't going to make it. Uh, a few years ago, I did a, a report at work. Uh, it's called Mindflick. And they came into our work and they basically analyzed all of us and told us kind of certain things that we were good at, certain things that we were bad at. And some of my good attributes were scenario planning. I was quite analytical, they said. I was able to develop kind of organized methods of working and I was devoted to my tasks and I like to get things right and do it the right way. But some of those characteristics, if not noticed and channeled in the right way, if not managed properly, could be a hindrance to my performance. So I can end up focusing on what will go wrong instead of just focusing on what I should be doing. I can overanalyze situations. I can doubt myself, I can doubt others, and I can doubt situations. I can be unwilling to take risks at times and when necessary. And the basis of that is that it's a fear of not following through. And this is what the devil likes to do to us, because we have a very real enemy who wants us to doubt the Lord. He wants us to doubt our promise of salvation. He wants us to think, what is the point in carrying on? Look at what's happening to my life. I've lost the fight. The fight is over. And he wants to cripple us with anxiety and fear on top of that. 
One of the devil's primary goals is to isolate us as believers. So then when you're going through a trial, something difficult in your life, that's when that 1 Peter 5, 8 devil comes in, who's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, walks into church on Sunday and finds the person that's struggling. John 10, 10 says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal her joy, kill her hope, and destroy her faith. And then instead of a life prioritized by joy, which is Jesus, others, and yourself, it becomes a life prioritized by me, myself, and I. That's what happens when we start listening to the lies of the enemy. What happens is we take our eyes off of Jesus and become self-focused. Anxiety takes grip. It weighs us down. At least this is what can happen with me. And it can lead to doubt, which leads to fear, which can lead to depression, which can blah, 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 blah. It's a vicious downward spiral. And that's when the devil starts to whisper all these little things in your ear. You know, you start to believe that I'm just not good enough for this life. You know, the devil says, oh, Paul, you didn't do this. You've done this too much. People won't have time for you anymore. Look at this trial. You keep going through trials. You keep going through hard times. Are you really worthy? How can you be a Christian if you're going through a trial? And this is kind of what was happening to the Jewish people. You know, doubt was beginning to creep into their lives. And the devil loves to make us think that our salvation is based on what we do, doesn't he? But the fact of life is we're all either in, we're all either coming out, or we'll all either eventually be heading into, sorry to break the news, a trial of some sort or other. That is some outward circumstance that is allowed to come into our life to test us. See, there are trials of our own doing, yeah? I'm not speaking about that. I'm not speaking about when you just, you know, have a certain amount of money in your bank account and it's like your budget until the end of the month and you just decide to go and blow it in the buy, I don't know, the latest Apple Watch or this or that, and then you end up with no money. That's your own fault. I'm not speaking about that kind of thing, okay? But we're speaking about what James calls various trials. Literally says many colored trials. It's the word used for a leopard. And this is particularly true right now, isn't it? This is true all the time. There's always something going on in the world that will cause us trials. At the moment, plenty of people are going through financial trials. Through no fault of their own. Because life is getting expensive, right? Electricity is getting expensive. Gas is getting expensive. It's becoming harder to pay the rent, feed the kids, keep up with the payments. Job losses are happening. And we are living in a time of great uncertainty and insecurity. It feels 
to some people that life might have been swept right out under their feet. Maybe you're grieving a lost one. Maybe you have health problems. Maybe you're suffering with disappointment. Maybe you have relationship slash family issues. Maybe you're suffering persecution. People do not like the fact that you're a Christian. Maybe your people you work with give you a hard time because you are a believer in Jesus. Maybe your family persecute you for your faith in Christ. Maybe your friends persecute and mock you. I would say if your friends do it, find new friends eventually. (laughs) But remember, Jesus here, sorry, James, is writing to a group of people who are in the midst of a real heavy time. They could relate to any of the, anything that I've just mentioned there. They were persecuted. They were forced to flee their homes. They were living in fear. They were living in poverty. They were literally fearing for their lives. And James wants us to know that we aren't just to suffer trials and get on, it, get on with it like a good old boy, but we are to be victorious through trials. And there's three important words in these first few verses, three things that we are to do, three commands in these first few verses that James tells us to do. Verse two, he says, count it pure joy. He tells us to know why we're counting it. And he tells us to let perseverance finish its work in us. Count to all joy when you fall into various trials. Know that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is James' advice. It's not even advice, it's an imperative. It's a command. James is commanding that we act and live this way. And first of all, he says, count to all joy when you fall into various trials. That is, whatever you're going through just now, if you are suffering a trial just now, if there's some outward circumstance in your life that is causing you problems, you're to count to all joy? I mean, are you crazy, James? Now, James isn't telling us to be thankful in the midst of trials. He's not telling us to be happy in the midst of trials. You know, when we go to the bank and it's in the red, he's not telling you to jump up and say, thank you, Jesus. When the car breaks down and all the kids are in it, we've had this a lot of times. He's not saying, Jesus, do it on a hotter day, you know? Just please. Give me more stress. He's not saying that. But he's saying to find the joy within that. To be joyful. That means that we're to have a reasoned gladness living inside of us. That means that we're to have a certainty living inside of us when we face trials. 
And the word that he uses for count it means to, in the NIV, it says, consider it pure joy. James isn't saying that trials are to be a joy in themselves. Trials are horrible, right? Hands up if you agree that trials are a horrible thing. Yeah? Good. Okay. But that we're to look past the trial and that we're to consider and evaluate why we're going through that trial. James wants us to be prepared and to know the reasoning behind the madness. So that when we do fall into various trials, we're going to face them with the right attitude. That we're going to know what the purpose of our affliction is. See, there can be a popular teaching that as soon as you become a Christian, you will never be affected by trials. That life will be gravy and candy floss for the rest of your life. And some people can take that to an extreme. You get ill, it's because you've sinned. You don't have money, it's because you've not got enough faith. You've lost your job, you must have done something wrong. And sometimes it could be the case, but this isn't always true. Because trials are, in fact, a part of life. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus promises this. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation, you will have trials, but be of good cheer because I have overcame the world. So in this world, you will have sickness, affliction, grievances, burdens, just these kind of things that Jesus is promising us. But Jesus also tells us to be of good cheer because he has triumphed over that. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just really quickly. There's one guy, hero of the New Testament, who verse 22, Paul, right, and says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times from the Jews... I've received 40 lashes minus one. How gracious of them. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger of false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Here's a guy that we can 
quite categorically say is a hero of the New Testament, yeah? And here is a guy who probably suffered more than anyone I can think of in life apart from Jesus. Shipwrecked three times. I mean, once is bad enough. Three times. Beaten. 40 lashes. Five times. Stoned. Starving. Left in the ocean. To die. I mean, this guy had it hard. And it sounds really harsh at first glance, doesn't it? That we're called to count and we're called to consider trials to be a joyful thing. Now, most of us aren't going to suffer anywhere near close to what Paul suffered. But still, we can find it hard to consider it joyful when we find ourselves in the midst of a situation like we're in at the moment. We don't like those kind of situations. And we can't really understand this statement to consider it as joy until we read the next verse. The reason that we're to consider trials joyful, that is, things that are happening outward in our life at this moment, I bet half of this church at least are going through a trial of some sort or another, because we are to know that the testing of our faith produces patience. And we're to let patience have its perfect work that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, trials are simply a vehicle. They're a vehicle through which our faith is tested. And when our faith is tested, this leads to patience. And that patience leads to an end goal, that we may be perfect and complete. See, the whole point in trials is that we may grow that we may be sanctified, that we may allow spiritual maturity to develop in our lives. Smooth seas don't make for skillful sailors. We've all heard that saying before, right? If our life was always just one easy plateau, we're not going to really grow and learn to trust in Jesus. If our faith isn't tested, when are we going to be allowed to learn to rely on God? In Genesis 22, verse 1 to 19, I can read it really quickly. We see this happening. See, this isn't just uh, something that's happening now. God has always used outward circumstances to test. When Abraham was tested, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, says Abraham. Then God said, Take your son, your only son who you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I'll show you. But Abraham is like, what? Early in the next morning, Abraham got up loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there. 
we will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, to Abraham, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place, and we all know the end of the story, that God graciously does provide an offering. When Israel came into the promised land, into Canaan, God gave them incredible victories. He gave them a land full of milk and honey. But he didn't remove all the people that were already there, did he? He left them so that Israel themselves could be tested. In Judges chapter 2, we read, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord or, and to walk in them the way their fathers kept them or not. Judges chapter 3, 1, the same thing. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel. Judges chapter 3, 4. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether or not they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. See, the fact is that when we start to walk with the Lord, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, he will allow us to be tested. Peter put it like this, just in case you think James is the right straw epistle. Peter says the very same thing. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while it need be that you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, having been much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter and James are saying is, and it's the same word that's used, that this considered joy that we're speaking about that we're to have when we're facing trials in our life is because we know with a certainty that the testing of our faith has an end result. It's not to make us fall and stumble, but to make us stand stronger, not weaker. But we won't know this unless we consider it and count it. See, trials are the furnace that burns away all the junk and dross in our lives. What else do we use a furnace for to burn away dross but with gold? See, God's desire here is that we would allow all our fleshly responses to be burned away and what would be left is a purer, more refined relationship with him. As an example, the missionary to Brist George Muller, I think it was Bristol he was in, daily, daily, regularly, he was in the midst of trials. They would wake up daily, he had an orphanage, 
and they would have nothing to feed the kids, he would pray to God about it, and God always pulled through. God always, somebody would leave something at the doorstep, somebody would just, you know, and somehow, if you read his biography, it's just, you just see God's faithfulness through and through and through and through. If George Muller hadn't gone through some of this, his relationship and his trust and his faithfulness in Jesus wouldn't have been the same. If we go mining and we find some gold, that's great. But you're never going to go mining and find a gold bar, are you? There's a guy that I like watching on YouTube sometimes, and he's like a he's a gold dealer, and he uh, he always shows you the process of how they make gold bars. And uh, it's only once you put the gold in the furnace and you burn away all the imperfections and dross. So he might come with kilos of little bits of gold and scraps and this and that and end up with a couple of ounces, I don't know, a couple of ounces of pure gold. Because all that dross, all that rubbish that's mixed in with the gold is burnt away. And that's what Jesus is doing in our lives through trials. It's a refining process. He wants to leave us pure. He wants to leave something of value within our lives. James is saying that when this happens, when our faith is tested, it refines us so that we can endure, so that we can be pure, so that we can have a purer relationship with Jesus, so that we can trust and rely on God even more. It's not to prove anything to God. God knows us. But it's to prove to us that we can trust in God and that we can keep trusting in God and keep trusting in God because God always comes through. It's not always the answer that we want, but the answer that grows character in us that God will give us is the answer that will most glorify him J. Vernon McGee said, when God tests us today, he puts us into the furnace. He doesn't do that to destroy us or to hurt or to harm us, but he wants pure gold. And that's the way he'll get it. Friend, that is what develops Christian character. At the time of testing, the dross is drawn off and the precious gold appears. That's God's method. That is God's school. We don't hear that teaching very much in our day. Rather, we're taught to become sufficient within ourselves. Oh, my friend, you and I are simply not adequate. We're not sufficient, and we never will be. We simply come to God as sinners, and he saves us by his grace through the blood of Christ. Then he wants to live his life through us. He tries to teach us this through our trials. He wants to draw us closer to him. Isn't that encouraging? Knowing that the testing of our faith, that that refining process produces a closeness with Jesus. And lastly, he says, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. Now, James isn't even speaking here about patience. There's many types of patience. He's not, taking, he's not speaking about the type of patience that it takes to wait for a bus in Spain or a taxi 
although the buses are much better than they used to be. But James uses a word here called hupamone. And it literally means patient endurance. Hupo means under, and meno, the word it comes from, means to abide or remain. So it means it's the kind of patience that you remain, you abide under. Yeah? Think of somebody holding a really large boulder up. That's the patience that he's speaking about. He's speaking about the patient endurance that it takes to win a marathon. A strongman challenge. See, we suffer during the trials and tests, but it creates a patient endurance within us. Raf's told this story recently a couple of times about, uh, I can't remember her name, but this female swimmer who went to Catalina Island in, off the coast of San Diego, somewhere in the States. And she swam and swam and swam and swam. And she ended up giving up. It's about the same distance as the channel, I think. But um, she gave up. And when she found out, she was, a, I don't know, it was a, less than a mile away from the, from the finish line. And she went back and she did it again. And the next time she did it, she completed it. Because she had that endurance. She'd done it before. She'd been tried in that situation and she was able to allow that endurance to keep her going. And when asked how she completed it, she said, I just had a picture of the beach the whole way. And, and that's hard. I mean, that's difficult. Because without this testing, this refining, our faith is always going to remain at welterweight level. Yeah? Anyone ever done couch to 5K? I don't know if I am putting I haven't. But uh, <laughs> once you've run 5K, you know that you can probably do a little bit more, yeah? You can probably hit 10K eventually, you know? This is what we're speaking about here. It's a victorious endurance that brings us on in our relationship, that brings us on in maturity, that sanctifies us, that sets us aside that allows us to grow in a relationship with Jesus, to trust him more. William Barclay says, it's a victorious endurance. It's unswerving constancy to faith and piety in spite of adversity and suffering. It's the virtue which does not so much accept the experiences of life as conquers them. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It gives the same idea. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, we have to endure so much less than Jesus did. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right-hand throne of God. Romans chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Same idea, same thing. We're not here just to suffer our fate miserably, but to welcome what God allows into our life and allow that to be turned into his glory that does not disappoint. Allow it to build character in our lives. To know that God is using trials to test our faith, to refine us, to make that dross pure so that we might grow and mature as believers. And this endurance, this life of faithful steadfastness in the midst of times of trouble, it can't be found by reading books. It can't be found by listening to sermons. And it can't be found by praying. Now, these are all good things to do. I'm not saying not to do these things. But just in the same way that we can't look at a cookbook and a cake appears, it simply shows us how it's to be done. This is very practical. This is something that we have to live and experience. It's developed in our lives through practical experience in times of trouble. And that's when we let patience have its perfect work in us and character develops. And that old man becomes a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. See, for us to let patience have its perfect work, means we have to submit ourselves to God when we go through trials. And that's not easy. It makes easier reading than application, doesn't it? We can sit here and listen to this and agree with it, but we have to go out and put it into application in our lives to let patience have its perfect work in us. When we say that, we're saying to God, I trust you, God. We're saying, I submit my will to your will. And that, that's not a natural reaction, is it, really? We like comfort. I like comfort, you know? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken us except such as common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. But with that temptation will also make the way of escape that we may be able to bear it. There's a promise that God will not allow you to take on more than you can handle. Letting patience have its perfect work is having that same attitude that Job had. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Did Job go through a really hard time? I think so. See, it's easy to pick up a, a bodybuilding magazine, read it and get inspired. Yeah. <laughs> Tell yourself that you're going to be that ripped muscular guy in the cover in no time. But the truth is, we so often tend to count it as joy, but then we avoid the gym. Yeah, 
<laughs> we avoid the trial because I'll look at the magazine, I'll consider the situation, and then I'll decide that rather than face the trial of lifting weights and doing cardio and da 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 da, pain, I'll embrace a nice comfy sofa and pillow and watch some nice comfy TV show while eating a nice comfy pizza and uh, nice comfy aircon on. And, you know, isn't that, that sounds nicer, doesn't it? But what is going to happen is we're not going to grow or we will, but just the wrong way. It's in our nature when it comes down to the nitty gritty to choose comfort over pain. And that's just as true in our spiritual life as it is in our physical life. Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul tells Timothy, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of this life now, and that is, sorry, having promises of this life that is now and of that which is to come. So, finally in closing, how can we do this? How can we apply this into our life? How can we allow trials to be something that lets us evaluate, count it, grow, have a closer relationship with God without wimping out? Well, very easily, we ask God. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and this is what he's speaking about with regards to this, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything for the Lord, for he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. If you lack wisdom, and we are always going to find ourselves in trials and tribulations where we do lack wisdom, the ability, wisdom is the ability to judge correctly and to follow the best course of action based on knowledge and understanding. So knowledge tells me the stove is hot. Wisdom tells me don't put my hand on the stove. If you need wisdom, where do we go first in the midst of tough, tough times? Friends, pastors, family members, they're all good. They're all great places to go. But no one can give us better help than God can. And God is literally saying here, come to me and ask me for wisdom. I'll give it to you. It shows me that God actually cares for those of us that aren't perfect. God doesn't say, here's a trial, deal with it. He says, here's a trial, but if, you, if you're suffering through it, come to me and ask me and I'll help you through it. God knows we lack wisdom. God knows that we don't have all the answers. And God made provisions for that. All we have to do is ask. And the ver same as Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened. The verb in both verses are what's called in the present tense. They, they carry this idea of just ask and keep on asking. You don't have to ask for wisdom once and leave it. Keep asking. God, I'm struggling with this. Give me wisdom to deal with it.
God, help me with this situation. I need wisdom. And it says that he gives to all, liberally and without reproach. That means unconditionally, generously, and he won't despise you or resent you for it. Isn't that a good God? Can we say amen to that? Yeah. Even the best gift can be spoiled by the manner it's given in. Have you ever been given something and then had it taken away because your parents regretted giving it to you? That happened to me a lot as a child. <laughs> but God's not, that's not God. And most of that was my fault, to be fair. You know, f- footballs and swords and stuff. And uh, But have you ever been given something on basis that you do something in return? You know, have you ever been given something and then had it held over you like a ransom note? This isn't what God's saying. God will never despise you or resent you because we keep asking him for wisdom. It's in his nature to keep giving. And this should help us to approach him regularly for wisdom. He doesn't reprimand us. He gives it freely and liberally, more than we need. He doesn't say, hey, I've already given you wisdom. I've given you your weekly allotment of wisdom. Come back next week. But there is one catch. It says that we're to ask in faith with no doubting. See, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. That's the only demand that God places on us when we come to him to ask for wisdom, that we would trust him to come through. This is what Jesus insisted on when people came to him for healing. Your faith has made you well. So a word of encouragement. If you're suffering a trial today, go to God. First, look at the trial. Be joyful, count it, evaluate it. Know that God is using it or allowing it to produce something better and deeper in your life with him. Go to God knowing that he wants to give you wisdom so that you can deal with life in a godly manner. And please, if you're suffering today or there's something you're going through or, you know, there's just something that you need that you're just like, man, I'm really struggling here. I've got some kind of trial in my life. We have a prayer team down here in the front at the end of the service, and people would love to pray with you because when we share our trials with each other, they can, it can be such a blessing to have someone pray over you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your nature. We thank you that you didn't just want to save us and let us be, but you want to save us and allow us to be conformed into your image. We thank you that you want to burn away and get rid of all the rubbish in our lives, Lord. And sometimes we might not like the method, but we trust you. We thank you that you offer all the solutions to the problem, Lord. We thank you that we can count to all joy when we fall into trials, knowing 
that it's going to create a greater relationship with you. We love you, we praise you. And we just pray, Lord, now that anyone struggling, anyone suffering with something that's maybe just not feeling it, that as the music plays, that they would just come down and ask for prayer. It's that simple. In your name we ask it. Amen.